Let us give thanks to he who walks behind the rose, who protects our crops. The God of sacrifice. The God who walked on the face of the earth. He who walks behind the rose. to me in my dreams and God has told me that it is now our time time to make sacrifice time to kill welcome to now playing's children of the corn retrospective series it is written a leader will come from the corn part of the now playing Stephen King movie review series I offer this to he who walks behind the rose Hosted by Stuart. This is my game. I've played it before and on better courts than yours. Jacob. He thought he had great spirit. And Arnie. Question me not, Malachi. I act according to his will. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new movie review based on the works of Stephen King. I've read the book, and for the first time in my life I know my purpose. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Did your mother teach you how to talk like that? Only when your name came up. Listener discretion is advised. The time of judgment is now at hand. Let the harvest begin. Outlander! We have your podcast! Discussing... I like. I don't even know what we're really discussing today, but I watched it. It's called Children of the Corn Genesis. We'll discuss about how much corn there is in it, <laughs> or how much Genesis, <laughs> or even children. <laughs> <laughs> yes, none of the people I'm going to list in the starring cast are underage. We have Corey Walker, Kellen Coleman, Billy Drago, and Barbara. Nedeljakova. They got an actual Ukrainian f- to play the Ukrainian, I see. <laughs> we'll discuss that. Directed by Joel Soyson. Joel Soysos? <laughs> <laughs> Who are these people? <laughs> <laughs> evil finds evil, so Now Playing Podcast found me, Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And this is he who walks behind the rose one final time. This is the last leg. I, I need a cup of Gatorade. Some water to pour down my back. I, I'm, I'll get corrupt past that finish line. It may kill me, but this is Jacob. What's really funny to me, Jacob, is usually you're the one who podcasts behind the rose. You're already half gone. You're walking away from us behind the rose <laughs> after eight what, films. It's true. I just, I want to walk away. Where are the rose? Does anyone see any rose? I don't see any corn for miles and miles and miles. We're in Southern California. What are we doing here? It may be a bad omen, but there's a lot of corn husk in this film, Stuart. (laughs) I I know where that falls. (laughs) I was thinking of Stuart. Shh, don't spoil it. (laughs) Well, this film is called Genesis, and part of me wondered, will it be a prequel? Will it be an entire story about the origins of Gatlin? It kind of fools me at the beginning, and we'll talk about it. But in the end, no, this has as much to do with any kind of Genesis as Revelation had to do with any kind of Revelations. 
<laughs> yeah, it's slightly biblical, and no one has a problem if you're starting over, right? Yeah, all of these, every time we do a Children of the Corn movie, I'm like, yeah, they could get the scythe and cut all of this down and start again, and it would probably grow back better. So, it, it's the end, it's the beginning, it's Children of the Corn 9, or it's Children of the Corn 8. I see in some countries it's called 8, so I guess they're totally ignoring that there even was a reboot. It's definitely not tied to any previous Children of the Corn movie. I would argue, I'm going to say right now, I don't think that this even was conceived as a Children of the Corn movie. I mean, keep in mind, in the late 2008-2009 decade, we had that story break about the polygamy cult in Texas, where there was a man who had like 30, like a whole schoolhouse of child brides, and when they finally busted him and hauled him away, they were all crying, and they had to put him on a bus, and they didn't want their husband to leave. It was a big story. People Magazine even ran the cover byline, The Children of the Cult. I mean, that this was a story. I'm guessing somebody wanted to tell a horror movie in that setting. A man that has a succession of child brides that he keeps in a rural area. And then somewhere along the line, someone said, eh, stick a few kernels of corn in here and we can get more money calling it a sequel. Well, also keep in mind, in addition to that going on, notice, and I mentioned this at the end of our last podcast, this is a Dimension Extreme film. This was the Weinsteins looking to get back into pay a little, make a little more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. With their franchises. Pick a penny up, maybe get one, two? Uh, yeah, I I don't get the business model of Dimension Extreme, but they definitely seem to want to pay no money to acquire horror product. It's either foreign films or super micro-budgeted local works that they are involved with. I've seen several. We've all seen Diary of the Dead, my very least Romero movie of all time. Remember that one? That was the found footage. Kids are driving home from a film shoot and everything they see is being eaten by zombies. Yeah, they did that one around the same time. The bane of my existence, the thing that made me question if I'm still a Hellraiser fan, is the desecration they did called Hellraiser Revelations. And recently, Doug Bradley was talking about this, about how he got a call from Dimension. And they're like, we have a half-finished script. We kind of want you back as Pinhead again, if you'll do it for scale. Far less than you've ever made for a Hellraiser film, including that first one. Oh my god. So, (laughs) it's like, Doug Bradley said, screw you. And so they got not even a lookalike, just somebody to wear the pins for that movie. And Hellraiser already had become a form of torture in and of itself, where every time you open that box, something worse comes out. Some might even argue, someday on a podcast, none of them are any good. But by the time you'd gotten to Revelations, it felt, truthfully, worse than some of the fan films I've seen on YouTube. And that came out under the same relaunched Dimension Extreme banner as this Children of the Corn film. They didn't give a crap about continuity. What they cared about was grabbing the names to which they own the rights and pumping something out so that fools like me would order it on Amazon. You know, it's not all bad. They did have a couple titles they just acquired from Film Fest or whatever that has buzz around them that I think are okay. Teeth, 
Do you remember that? It was. I liked that one. Yeah. Yeah. A teenager who grew. Uh, yeah. Teeth yeah. in her vagina. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and there was a French film that got some play called Inside. I'll let people discover it, but it was kind of extreme and fun. Argento's Mother of Tears. Uh, they're better off when they acquire something. When they homegrown it, when they say, hey, we got a free weekend, five people, and a title that we can stick on here. They end up with Genesis. Yeah. Just to put it in perspective, I mean, their budget for these kinds of movies, about 300 grand. Yeah. And you know what? You can have big profits for 300 grand. You can mock it all you want, and I may do so one day, but Paranormal Activity is probably one of the most successful film series of all time because they spend nothing on those movies and they make 60, 70, sometimes a hundred million dollars. And I think that was the model here. I think that they thought, what if we put a couple in a house full of video equipment and we just make a found footage horror movie? The problem is they didn't find any footage, but yeah, I think that this is the Children of the Corn that seeks to jump on the Paranormal Activity bandwagon. So Paranormal Activity had come out by this point, because I definitely... Oh yeah, most of the sequels had even come out by this point. It was a well-known property. There is a sequence of scenes where I'm like, oh, they are just going for that now. There's no security cameras. There's no fast forward motions added in post, but definitely there's probably nothing done in post on this film. It's obvious that that was the one and only target for these filmmakers. Make something as cheap as that that makes as much money as that. Well, I guarantee this didn't make 60, 70, 100 million dollars because <laughs> when we started Children of the Corn, I honestly didn't know. I, the Stephen King fan, didn't know that they'd made another corn film after that 2009 remake. This was a surprise to me. We're looking at the calendar. I'm like, Genesis? The fuck is Genesis? Well, I guess that's your cue then. What the fuck is Genesis? Arnie, give him the pot. Sometimes this is a real unenviable position to be in. <laughs> it helps me because I never know what I've seen in these films most of the time. <laughs> well, in the deserts of California, not Nebraska, but California, young marrieds Tim and Allie's car has broken down. In the middle of nowhere, they walk until they find a boarded up house owned by an old man named Cole. Cole doesn't want to help them, but finding out Allie is newly pregnant, he allows them to use their phone. But on a Sunday in this remote location, no tow truck will come. So Cole's Ukrainian mail-order bride, Helen, says it's God's will that Tim and Allie stay the night. But they're warned not to snoop. Yet snoop Allie does and finds they have a young boy locked in the shed. Helen says it's Cole's kid, and Cole says it's Helen's bastard child with whom she was pregnant when she came to the States. But no matter what, the kid is possessed. Cole, a former resident of Gatlin... Not really. 20 miles outside. I think that's Hemingford. <laughs> ...says the child is possessed by he who walks behind the rose, and that malevolent spirit needs children to survive, and it wants Allie's child. Anytime Tim and Allie try to leave, the doors slam shut and other telekinetic things occur... But come daylight, they're finally able to drive off. But the little boy was given a toy car carrier, which he uses to cause a real car carrier to lose its load, making Tim and Allie crash, the man dying in the accident. And the seemingly kindly delivery man, who was going to drive Tim and Allie away, comes to Allie's aid, yet actually drives her back to the preacher's house where she becomes a disciple of the evil young child as credits roll. And damn this movie, it starts... In 1973, outside of Gatlin, a guy's coming home from the Vietnam War, 
And I'm thinking, what do you know? It really is the Genesis. They're going back to that original. Gatlin looks happy. There's kids playing. It's not the original. The original took place in 1983, Arnie. No, this is a sequel to the reboot. (laughs) No, but that would have made it 1963. Oh, that's right. (laughs) This is in continuity of no movie. Well, have any of these sequels... Keep in mind, they had retconned it to 1978 and 666 that Vicky and Bert drove to Gatlin, and therefore, five years earlier is when this could have occurred. I was thinking the 666 time. No, in 1978, (laughs) the first ones had a child, so this is five years before that. Right, which is when the original massacre of the parents could have occurred. Oh, are you talking about the Stephen King story? Sure, I don't care. <laughs> Look, does it really matter? Have any of these gone with the sequel before them? Has there been any timeline here? At the very least, it's before any other story we've seen. I was thinking it's called Genesis. It'll be all about the first coming of He Who Walks Behind the Rose. Yeah, I actually thought this beginning was going to be where the film ended. We were going to get a flashback after this opening sequel. But no, the only genesis in this film is Cole, the soldier, he sees his mom dead, he sees his dad dead, and his dad's holding a couple of pages from the Bible, uh, from the book of Genesis. That's it. That's all the genesis we're getting here. Yeah, don't forget his girlfriend's upstairs slit down the middle, I guess. You know, it's kind of an effective opener. It's coming home from war only to find that your family has been butchered by the children that are playing on the lawn and looking so sweet in Americana, jumping rope and making dolls and what have you. I, I don't think this is a bad setup. It's just not a setup for the movie we're going to see for the next 70 minutes. <laughs> I actually did think they were going to try, again, that reboot, they brought the whole Vietnam War in there and Bert was having flashbacks as he ran through the corn. As Cole's being attacked, he does see a Vietnamese child and he's being called a baby killer. I, w- I was wondering, like, is Hubie, is his genesis, is he the vengeance of these children that are being murdered in war? I, I guess I- I'm always grasping at corn husk through these films, hoping that there's some deeper meaning. But they they always start, they always give me a hint of hope that they'll delve somewhere deeper besides being boring slasher films. You and I were seeing the same opening here, Jacob. When the Vietnam flashbacks came, I'm immediately thinking of the reboots, Burt's. I'm wondering if they're really going to try to tie this in. At this point, I think I'm going to watch a Children of the Corn movie. And (laughs) it looks like from this opening that there's going to be some kind of continuity. The fact that they do this opening the way they do... Rewatching this film is utterly confounding. It is almost like they started to make one movie, decided to cancel it after like two days of shooting, and use the footage to make a totally separate movie. No, I think they added this sequence after this became Children of the Corn instead of Child Brides. Yes, that would be what I'd argue. I mean, none of these actors are going to be in the rest of the movie. Their character is going to continue. His history as a soldier or a baby killer has no relevancy in the next part of the movie. But I predict that when they decided to go corn, they went back and found a little more money to shoot this sequence. It's the only sequence of the film that really feels like a Children of the Corn movie because you have little kids, they're killing adults, they're holding corn husk crosses, and hey, they're in Nebraska. Right. I was a little confused, though, because Cole is there, he's having his flashback, his sister Tiffany stabs him, but instead of shooting Tiffany or the flashback Vietnamese child he's seeing... He decides to put the gun to his own head 
and kill himself. But Tiffany then throws a cross at his head, knocking him backwards, which appears to be down the stairs, and then he's flying out a window, so she <laughs> saved his life? Yeah, don't worry about continuity between the this movie and previous movies. Worry about shot continuity. They're standing <laughs> at one point, and then at another point, we're asked to believe that, yeah, he was by a window when he was standing next to the stairs. I yeah, I was very confused by the whole thing. Yeah, the sequencing didn't seem to work. But furthermore, why is he left alive? I guess because they had already shot their child brides movies, and he had to have some kind of intro, but... Come on, does this make any sense? These are fresh kills. Those parents, the girlfriend, they haven't been sitting around for months or years. Those look pretty fresh. So why did these children let him survive? Why isn't he dead? That's the compelling concept of this movie. <laughs> you can't even say it with a straight face. <laughs> why do these, and they're all little girls, right? Why do these little girls not finish the job? They stabbed him once. He's, you know, I don't think that that fall could have killed him, but he'll bleed out if he doesn't get up and patch up his wound without some intervention. He will die here on the pavement. The presumption that when we see him again, what, 20, 40 years later, I'm not sure how much time passes. Present day. We're in present day. Oh, okay. Yeah. So 40 years pass. Somebody must have helped him out and that this must be a part of the conspiracy. The children have plans for Cole. And I actually took it like when we see Cole again, that he would be fighting against this Cole. Like there's no explanation throughout this film why he decides to help him. Like that that's my thing. Now that I've seen this film, there's no reason why he's still associated with them. Why do you presume he is helping them? I assume that is exactly what he's doing. I presume that Cole ran away from the whole Gatlin massacre to hide in the farms and deserts of the deserty farms, <laughs> the place in California where nothing grows that he can set up his farm to <laughs> avoid children and massacres and all of that. That's what I take as well, and this is just my inference watching the film, is that after Gatlin, he became a recluse yeah. and moved into the absolute furthest spot from where a Children of the Corn movie would ever take place, a desert in California. And that's what I thought when I saw this, but that's not where the film goes. We'll talk about where the film goes, because I don't know where the film goes, and I get right. a plot summary. We'll talk about it when we get there, but my instinct when we have this young, comely, married couple where the wife is pregnant, and they're wandering through, and they walk up to this house with a crucifix on the door, and Cole, now an old man played by genre actor Billy Drago, is like, we don't have a phone. I'm thinking he just, he wants to stay the hell away from society after what he witnessed in first Nam, then Gatlin. Right. That's the tease that they're going to surprise us with in the middle of the movie. And you know what? In the first half of this movie, I am pleasantly surprised. Like you, Arnie, I thought I was sitting down to watch the very worst corn. It was going to be extremely awful. Worse than Revelations, if such a thing can be imagined. But I'm actually surprised. I like this couple. The production values aren't bad. And for a horror movie setup, it's completely routine. I think I'm following the story. I think I'm ahead of the story, but I think that, hey, this is got a kernel of something going on here in the first half of the movie. I am with you, Stuart. I, I am pleasantly surprised that there are production values in this film. I'm not thinking about the story. I don't care about the story. It's not engrossing me, but I'm like, yes, they have good lighting. It's not awful to watch. It, it is a very bland piece of cake that I can eat thus far. 
I learned from my review of the Blade TV series for the Gazette that the digital cameras these days mean you don't need good lighting. <laughs> so you can do a lot with the digital cameras and low light. So they don't have good lighting. What they have is no film and a digital camera. Probably one of the ones we actually see later used as a prop is one of the cameras they use <laughs> to shoot this film. And it does look good. I'm with you, Stuart. I'm actually somewhat into this plot. I'm getting into it as this couple is going. Is there anything exceedingly original here? No. But you get a young couple stranded in the backwoods of California. The back tumbleweeds. <laughs> yeah. They really got lost because L.A. is 90 minutes from Victorville. And they're claiming that they're 140 miles away from Victorville. But it yeah. is all desert out there around there. I don't know how they're driving to Victorville. Even if you go through Palmdale and take Pear Blossom Highway, there's roads there. You're not driving on dirt. True. But I'm now thinking I'm not seeing a Children of the Corn film, but I might be seeing a pretty good Texas Chainsaw Massacre here. I'm definitely getting that vibe when they get into the house and there's this seductive Ukrainian woman and this weird preacher Cole. I'm definitely getting a House of a Thousand Corpses, Texas Chainsaw kind of feel where these two have walked into their own doom. Yeah, it's a really hip couple. She's vegan. He's listens to her. She's sort of the boss of the family and they're very modern and then they're stepping in. They're stranded in a house where they must spend the night with people that are, yeah, just weird, creepy and rural. Rural people are scary. I think that that's where this <laughs> movie is going to be. Actually, I don't think it's going to be because I hear that the character's name is Cole. And because I saw Cole coming home from the Vietnam War and I'm putting two and two together, I presume that they're leading me into thinking that he's going to be the bad guy. But in fact, he's going to be a heroic character that helps them from an unseen evil later in the picture. It kind of goes there and then it doesn't. But that is where I'm, my mind is at at the beginning. And I, I want to add, at the risk of overpraising this setup in this movie, I actually think they're presenting us with the best female protagonist they've had so far. Up to this point, they've either been bland like Linda Hamilton or shrill like Candice McClure. And this girl, she's got a little bit of both. I mean, she's kind of nice and funny, but at the same time, there's an edge to her. And I think that she plays it well. I, he is willing to walk away from the scary farm when he's told there's no phone there. She insists on marching in and getting what they need to survive. Yeah, she's never seen a horror film. That's the problem. I'm with the husband here. Walk <laughs> away. That's a bad situation. That is every horror film ever right there. And because this is a Children of the Corn film, I started off this movie thinking she was going to be the first kill. She got them into the situation. You know, it's the refusal to take a hint that often kills people in these movies. When you get the old man, it's got a death curse, and you keep going. That's why you die. So for the first half of this movie, I think she's going to be the first kill. And then even though she's pregnant. Sure. Yes, I think so. Especially when it's kind of implied she aborted her first one. Yeah. And she's cute, but she's not leading lady cute. She doesn't have that thing that draws my eye to her. Mrs. Langenkamp. <laughs> rah, rah, rah. <laughs> yeah, precisely. <laughs> Kirsty, such sights to show with your homeliness. <laughs> Yeah, I, she's she's an attractive girl. I do think she likes playing pregnant because based on the photos I've seen of her, she used this opportunity to eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> but 
I think she's the first kill for most of this movie. It's not until about midway through that I realize she's the last girl. No, you know what? They make too much of a big deal about her pregnancy, that she had been pregnant once before, and they make us think it's a miscarriage. There's something up with this pregnancy. You don't draw so much attention to her being pregnant unless that's going to play out in the plot. And I hope this script is at least competent enough to understand that. It is in the end, but that's why I never feared her being the first kill. I thought she would actually be around to the end. And this actress, she has gone on and worked. She's on that HBO show, The Newsroom, currently in a minor role. I've seen her in that really awful comedy, Fired Up. I mean, she's done other stuff. She survived this film. Well, well, that's kudos. There's only one actor I recognize here, and it was Billy Drago, who I didn't even know what I'd seen him before, but I'm like, oh yeah, he's the one that you want to get when you want to hire Willem Dafoe, but you can't afford. I didn't quite know what to take about the Ukrainian wife, Helen, though. This is where I start to get some intrigue, because... She sees this couple, immediately says, take me with you, and starts to bare her breasts and rub herself and grab Tim's junk, when literally three to five feet away, both of their spouses are just sitting there having awkward conversations and sweet tea. Look, I actually have had an experience similar to this. Unfortunately, there is no tits or crotch rubbing going okay, on. Okay, I thought you were saying you had an experience where your wife was in the other room and a woman was grabbing No, no, but here's the thing. I don't know if you guys have heard of Colorado City. It's a fundamentalist. Mormon polygamous city where none of them finish their houses so they don't have to pay taxes. All the women wear long skirts with jeans under them. And it's on the border of Utah and Arizona. So if only one state comes to get them, they could all run to the other side. And (laughs) we were traveling one time. We're like, let's go drive through Colorado City and see these weird fundamentalists and get some ice cream. There's a little gas station there and they had like actually really good ice cream. And why the lady serving it up had to be like an 18 year old girl. She's like, hey, can I come with you guys? And we're like, ah, ha, ha. That's funny. She's like, no, seriously, can I come with? Like, she was trying to get out of there. So this that did give me a hint that there was something, child brides going on, something like that. Was she offering to be the second wife? I'm confused. No, I think she just wanted to get the hell out. She's probably already married by the time of 18. Yeah, it's probably negotiable. But yeah, it's a hostage situation. I do think this place is dark comedy. The idea that he just wants to make a phone call to the auto body shop and and he's going to get a surprise reach around. And what do you do about that? That's not scary. They're not going for horror this time. This is like a, a, a black comedy in which things get weirder and weirder. And we like this couple. They seem so normal and they just keep getting themselves in a situation that's more and more uncomfortable and embarrassing. I'm definitely going with this setup, though, because I'm trying to figure out who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. We know this couple who's strolled in is innocent. But when you start setting Cole, who's now going by the name of Preacher, versus Helen, initially I'm thinking Cole's going to be good because he came back from Vietnam and saw the Nebraska massacre. But now that he's going by Preacher, when those kids surrounded him, did they convert him? What is going on here? Helen wants to escape. I dare say was intrigued by this movie for quite some time. And I was going with the kind of slow setup. I mean, nobody dies for the first three quarters of this movie. There's very little death in this movie. It is not the slasher I thought it was when they walked up. There's just not enough people to slash. Even in the opening Gatlin scene, we don't see anyone die. We just see dead people. And during all of this, though, what's getting me is 
I don't know who the bad guy is, and I kind of like it. Well, there are things that are happening. I, I think as they're sitting there, a uh, dish on its own accord just wobbles and falls off a table and breaks. That's the first indication that this is a haunted house. And I latch on to that. That's what I believe. I believe they're trying to make me think Drago's bad because he's always bad, but that there is an unseen force that is to be found. And I'm still thinking, because he goes by Preacher and he's an adult, that he's going to be fighting against Hubie. That's what I'm holding out on. But I, I agree with you, Arnie. I'm not bored to tears. I'm not hating it like I have like some of those other corn films we've done. I'm kind of intrigued. I'm like, all right, this isn't bad for a non-horror fan. This is a good setup. I like mystery. I like atmosphere. And they've set that up. I mean, there's a TV, a huge flat screen TV sitting there with a camera. And like, what's the deal with that? Like, I do agree with Tim and Allie, that couple that were stranded on the road and walked in. Like, they're like, oh, they got some weird sex thing going on. They're filming orgies. I'm like, yeah, what is the mystery? Why does this guy who barely has anything have this nice TV? Do we ever figure that out at, by the end? <laughs> no, <I> mean- <laughs> because when they watch the camera, they just watch the viewfinder on the camera. I honestly think the producer wanted a new plasma TV, and they're like, we need it as a prop. (laughs) No, I think that this is the setup to the paranormal activity part. This is where I'm like, okay, lots of cameras around. It's bedtime. They're lying there. Things are going to happen to them while they sleep, and they're going to play back the footage on the camera, and we're going to see the ghostly comparatives. I think I know what I'm getting here, but there's just not enough of the footage. When they finally decide to look at what's on the camera... I can't even tell you what they see. They see one child that looks like it was shot with night vision kind of just standing there in a, in a trance, but there's nothing paranormal about it. Yeah, th- Cole says later that he took these videos to study the signs. Like, what, there's a fly? Well, yeah, you throw a kid in a barn and make him live there, there's probably going to be flies all over Oh, us. that's right. There is that footage of, like, a maggot's crawling in his ear and a fly lands on his eye, right? Yeah, it kind of bugged me that it was on his eye. It's gross. <laughs> yes, but. you have your eye thing. He's documenting that the child is evil. That's what we'll end up finding. There's a child in the barn, and we know it's evil because he's got photographic proof on these cameras. Is it proof, though? Like, I don't even think Tim sees the maggots and the flies. That's shown later when Cole is discussing it. I don't know what Tim sees. I I see some feet. They look dirty. This kid could use a bath. There's an arm in there, I think. I don't know what's going on when he's watching this camera. Listen, I have seen this way too many times. People who have the money for expensive equipment but absolutely no idea how to make a shot. (laughs) You see these people all the time at conventions. They aren't worried about composition. They just spent five grand on a camera and all of a sudden you get close-ups of fingers. I mean, it's art. (laughs) I was wondering why, Cole, I'm assuming that's an expensive camera. Why don't you have the uh, $100 thing you could get at Walmart? Here's the thing. We know we're watching Children of the Corn and the children are always evil. So why would they think that we would be afraid of Cole? There's no example of this other than when they had David Carradine. I I mean, I guess Drago could be like a David Carradine working with the child. But if the child is whimpering in a barn, our sympathies are not with that child. Allie believes that there's mistreatment and maybe human trafficking going on here. We know, right? You know that whatever the evil ends up being, and I'm not sure we can define it, but the evil is coming from that child. So the mystery is kind of wrecked just by calling it children of the corn. Yeah, for me, okay, so they're staying the night. They're not supposed to go anywhere outside but the outhouse. They can only go take a shit if that's what they need to do. Otherwise, they have to stay in this room. And of course, Allie, she has to go to the outhouse, and she creeps around, and she... She's doing that. 
that stereotypical slow horror walk. Yeah. This is where I know I am so <laughs> sure she's the first kill because only the first kill walks like that in the shadows. But here's the thing. We see Cole like kind of lurking around looking to see what's making this noise. At no time am I like, oh, he's going to take an axe or a pitchfork or a scythe and kill Allie. I'm like, he's watching out for whatever evil's out there. Like I, because yeah, you're right, Stuart, because this is a corn film. I'm not suspecting Cole. I'm suspecting whatever child is out in that shed. I have no idea what to suspect because I am just hitting the reset button. This is called Children of the Corn Genesis. We're reviewing it as part of the Children of the Corn series. But I, again, think I'm watching a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't know what is in that barn. Maybe a child, maybe Leatherface. But I've just flushed anything about Gatlin and Hubie and children out. I'm going wherever this movie takes me. And the fact that you have Cole versus Helen, and each is saying the other is the evil one. I'm intrigued. I want to know who the evil is. I th really think when Allie's out there snooping around, Cole is going to come up with a scythe or something, and then the rest of the movie is going to be Tim looking for her, Tim trying to escape, maybe a few more people, innocents might be tied up in that barn that he tries to escape with. I'm going anywhere, but I feel we are in a rote slasher. How wrong I am, <laughs> but I think we are. Yeah, that seems to be the problem for you, is you keep believing that the kills are just around the corner. I, having seen Paranormal Activity, know it's all about things flying off the shelf, that we get lots of weird imagery, like the child comes into the house, but no one can see him because they're in a daze or something, and it leaves bloody handprints, and what we're in for is not kills. It's phenomena. Yeah, phenomena starts happening. And I do love how Allie, like, she's like, okay, hear me out. I think I figured out what's going on. Telekinesis. Like, where is that the first <laughs> thought, like, to come to your head? It's funny. I think that's a joke. She's a vegan. You know from Scott Pilgrim that vegans have special psychic <laughs> powers. So I go with that. I did laugh, Stuart. You're saying it's a joke. I did laugh when they're like, maybe we're dead. Maybe we die yes. out there on the street. Yes. Or maybe this is dream. And Tim's like, I can go over every pop cultural reference there is to explain why this isn't a dream. I'm like, oh, yeah, Inception had been out at this by this time, hadn't it? Yeah, I do think that they literally find themselves in a situation where they're like, okay, we could go any different road here to explain what's going on. And all of them are cliches and none of them are satisfying. So what is really going on? The fact that they don't get to be put on a road, that's what's frustrating to me. The second half of this movie is far less satisfying than the first half because they really never do settle down and tell us what is evil and why it's happening. Yeah, that's the problem with the mystery. You could set up that mystery, and that's great. And I think where so many films and long-running television shows, when they have a great opening season with all these mysteries, is how do you pay that off? Do you have a satisfying answer? And no, there, there's not a payoff here. It's, it's just more confusion. Yeah, I mean, I am really with this movie for the first 40 minutes. Which is half the film, another 80-minute film here. Yeah, and I'm thinking when Allie is out there snooping around the barn and she's walking slow, even 10 minutes past that, I'm thinking, could this possibly be the best of the Children of the Corn films? <laughs> I mean, I'm really, that's how into this I am. Well, it's a low bar. Yeah, it could. It could. <laughs> it could. <laughs> <laughs> There's not been a single bright green arrow in this series. Most are red. So I'm thinking this could be a good film. And it's right about this point. She gets back. She's like telekinesis. She decides she's going to go out there and stall Cole while Tim calls the police. 
Tim's looking through the camera instead. Doesn't know how to use a tripod. Like trying to get the camera back on the tripod. Hold on, those are those are fucking hard. Okay, this is why you get the quick attach. Those little screw mounts. <laughs> this guy spent a ton on a camera and got like the six dollar tripod. And no, those are a pain. I guess I'm just used to six dollar tripods. Then I'm like, what's the hang up? Why is this taking twenty minutes to get this t- camera attached? You got to get the threads in the hole, and then you got to spin it, and if the lens is heavy, you got to really tighten it, and he's nervous, he's shaky. I get that. But all of this, I'm finding, God help me, suspenseful. Is Cole going to kill her? Cole starts, like, grabbing her hair and sniffing it. It's really creepy. I'm like, okay, Cole's an evil motherfucker. Yeah, at this point, he tells Allie that Tim and Helen fucked in the kitchen, and she, like, goes for it. She's like, yeah, that is a possibility. I'm like, huh? They were like literally five feet away, just around the corner. Yeah, that would have to be the quietest fucking in history. Here's the thing. They want to make the second half about instilling doubt in the marriage and that there are these visions or the paranormal activity itself is making them think and see things that make them turn on one another. Not a bad way to go. If you've only got four people in a house, then yeah, let's make that the drama here. But I never believed that Tim wanted to sleep with Helen or Oksana or whatever you want to call her. I do believe <laughs> that Allie had the abortion, though. So which is truth and which is fiction? I, I I couldn't figure that out. I feel like it's fine to trick the couple, but we should know exactly what happened. We shouldn't be as in the dark as they are. I think both happened because we do get like a psychic flash of Tim fucking hell. There's no way. They're, they're, I know on. it seems improbable, but it seems impossible. And Helen's a victim. She's not evil. Again, they try to make her seem like she's evil, but she's just as much a prisoner to this child as Drago and and the couple are. Right, but she's willing to trade sex to get the hell out. That sex that's unwanted? (laughs) I think he would have paid her to not sleep with her. I mean, he gave her 50 bucks just for a phone call. Yeah, that that's and she wanted some pot too. <laughs> Which tells me yes, she she just wants to escape. She does not like being there. But here's the thing, I just don't see Tim like when him and Allie go to the room at when they first are going to stay the night, he's like straight up, "Yeah, she tried to bang me." Like I don't see him giving a little bit of details if he's trying to hide it, that he actually fucked her. Yeah, he's very forthcoming about it. They laugh about it. They laugh at the the very idea that he would act on it is hilarious to both of them. I get the sense that they know each other. This is not a Vicky and Bert situation where it's a couple at each other's throats. I believe that their marriage is solid. So when they start turning on each other, I have to believe that's only the influence of the child, that the kid in the barn is making them do that. But yet you believe Allie got a secret abortion. I do. Yeah, I, I kind of believe that too, Stuart. Because she said it when she, I mean, she's just sipping tea and, you know, she talked about a false start to her first pregnancy. It's so awkward the way that she talked about it. I yeah, mean, it, it didn't take. Why wouldn't you say miscarriage? Yeah, the, her terminology led me to believe that there was more there than what she said and that she needs to get better at telling that story. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought was going to get her killed is because Preacher's obviously a religious man, right to life and all that, kill the person who had the abortion. Right. I, I got that sense that this couple was an affront to his religious beliefs that, you know, her 
veganism and and all of that that she was just something he had he hadn't seen before and and did not like. I thought that was going to be a source of tension, and I guess it is, but really all of this kind of goes away into hazy visions. Keep in mind, there's a dream sequence here, too. They do take a nap. They do get some shut-eye in this evening, and she winds up in the only cornfield we're ever going to see, with killer kids trying to stab her. I don't even get what the point of this dream is. I don't see how it ties into the ending. It's just, yeah. Again, here's another pickup we had to do to make sure we can put the corn title on this. It's so surreal because she's like following a child. She reaches out to it and touches her belly. So I'm like, is this a dream child Friday situation where she's seeing the child she will give birth to and then it's trying to kill her and... I'm wondering where this is all happening, because the last time we saw her, she was banged against a wall crying after her fight with Tim, and now all of a sudden she's waking up in this field. I'm like, dream sequence, psychic vision, bad editing. I'm just confused, and it never really pays off, although I guess really it is her child, and she's seeing that her child will join the corn cult. Yeah, let's get to the source here. We're told, I think it's Oksana is the one that says something about a seed within the seed. Hubie? Is the child? Hubie has possessed the child. Okay. There is a real child. Let's go in baby steps here. (laughs) That six years ago, this mail-order bride arrived and had sex with Cole, and they had a real baby. Or she came pregnant with the baby, if you believe Cole. We don't know who the baby daddy really is. We get two conflicting stories and no reason to believe either. Yeah, I never believed that she was a mail-order bride. Where would he get the money? There's just some logistics here that don't make sense. Oh, no, I fully believe she's a mail-order bride. Yeah, she's not local. She didn't come from Gatlin. I know she's not local, but was she, like, off the boat, smuggled in, and this is the dude she ended up finding that would let her in? They both say she was writing him letters from the Ukraine. Maybe mail-order brides are much more affordable than I thought then. Jacob, you once found yourself in the middle of a polygamous sect. I once found myself (laughs) doing computer repairs at a quote-unquote business, which turned out to be a Russian mail-order bride (laughs) business. Wow. And I got to hear his customer service calls about how this guy got a Russian bride who came to the States to marry him and then stole all his money and furniture. He came home to a blank, empty house. Wow. So (laughs) I've seen that side of it. I firmly believe that this is a Russian mail order bride. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. That's what I'm saying. Well, let's not get hung up on that. This woman came from somewhere. And please, there's a lot more to get through. This woman came from somewhere and either was pregnant or had a child six years ago. At some point, they realized this child was evil and they stuck it in the barn, padlocked it, even though it has psychic powers and can undo the padlock and do whatever it wants. And they've been, they've been prisoner. Yeah, I don't, if it can undo the padlock, why is it fucking in there? Because it chooses to be. Because it's... It likes the heat and the smell of the dank shed? I mean, it makes no goddamn sense. That's all I'm trying to call out. This does remind me of a Twilight Zone. It was a TV episode, and it was in Twilight Zone, the movie, where these people are held captive by the whims of this psychic child, and I think that that's kind of the scenario, is that would be the good twist. If they had set this up a little bit better, that would be the good twist if you believe this was 
was a creepy evil couple that's exploiting children for their own deviant fantasies and videos, and it turns out to be that they are being held prisoner by a child that makes them get video equipment and do all kinds of silly things for his own entertainment. Yeah, heaven forbid we go back to Children of the Corn 5, but yes, a David Carradine situation would have made more sense, where this child is using coal, that would make him even more of a victim. He didn't just die, he became this mind slave to the children, and he's going around getting more kids to build this cult. That would be a decent twist, but I don't think that's what the twist is. I don't know if there is a twist, it's just muddled confusion. But at the same time, they want to involve this new couple and that we're supposed to think that they're in danger by being here. Because so far, it's just, okay, parents are being held hostage by their kids. This child is going to, in some way, infect the unborn child that's inside Allie, is what we're being told. It's really confusing. The seed in a seed thing, I never quite understood. Yeah. We do believe there's some danger. A cop showed up. Allie was (laughs) able to get through to the police right before the phone was disconnected and a cop shows up and then he's just thrown into space. That is awesome. He has launched into space. And we will get a funny mid credit scene. <laughs> it's only funny because I'm sitting here like, so that's our first kill? A yes. cop shows up. He can't hear them, even though they're screaming through broken windows, pounding as hard as they can. He can't hear a damn thing. And then just launched into space. Yeah, and ironically, it's actually the last kill, I think. No, there's one more, two more. Well, no, because I I don't know if he dies until he lands at the end. <laughs> <laughs> it is also a little paranormal activity. I think I'm the only one here that's seen it, but there is some incredible uh, physics involved with yeah, people being yanked out of rooms as well. That I, I think it, I think this is a direct correlation to that series and it it is kind of fun i mean it is not how we expected this cop to die we knew that something was going to go wrong because the couple screaming for his attention banging on the window he can't hear them he can't see them but no i wasn't expecting he was going to be sucked into the void of space yeah but when tim finally sits down with cole and yeah you're right arnie the seed within a seed like Okay, I I was understand evil has to grow. It's like anything else. It has to grow and turn evil. That's where the Bible, I guess, got it wrong. And so evil's like a seed. But then when it was, yeah, seeds within seeds, I'm like, does the kid have to have kids to make the evil stronger? Is it we sacrifice the old evil and transfer it into the new baby so it's even more evil? I don't understand what he's saying. And Cole really tries to explain Hubie's plot, which is like that... Only children will listen to him and do his evil. Adults won't kill for him. And so all the adults must be killed so that he can keep his control over the children. Nine movies in, we're finally understanding why he who walks behind the rose likes kitties. Right. I think that's appreciated, although the way it's dispensed makes it somewhat incredulous. I mean, it would be nicer to have Hubie himself explain that. But since Hubie's not in this movie, I guess I'll take it where I can get it. Hubie is in this movie. He's in the child in this movie. I guess. What we're supposed to understand is somehow from Gatlin to California, Hubie has come and possessed Cole's child for how? Don't know. Why? Maybe he's pissed that Cole survived? Don't know. I'm going to go with this. And it's not that important. It's a little bit flimsy. But from all of this evil finds evil talk, I get the sense that Cole made himself susceptible to being possessed or being stalked by a ghost, by a Hubie, because of what he did in the war. That because he killed children over there, he can now be stalked 
continuously for the rest of his life. And I think I'm extrapolating. I think because yeah, none of this is in the film. But I think because Allie, quote unquote, killed her first child, aborted it. I think this movie is I'm using that as a judgment call against her moral character and saying that she can now be infected by Hubie. I don't get that. I just got the sense when Cole is given this big, long monologue is Hubie attracts pregnant couples. The man always dies and it's Cole's job to bury him. And we don't know at this point what happens to the women. But Cole definitely says he's there to clean up Hubie's mess. And we only see men getting buried. Yeah, we see a couple of corpses, one's on a post, one's on the ground. I don't know if it's the same corpse or different corpses. And Cole's just putting them in the cellar. I'm enjoying the mind games, but when they try to explain stuff, it's just confusing me. And also the fact that they are now trapped in this house. It's not even Cole or Helen doing it. If Tim and Allie try to leave, doors slam, they lock, they can't get out of this house. But they'll be able to, they'll just never know when. It's when the boy falls asleep, and you'll never know when that is, you'll only know when he's awake. Okay, I just keep trying. Right. Well, luckily, he falls asleep by the time Mr. Pritchard, the delivery man, shows up. Now, this is where the movie goes a twist too far. Because I know, you know, Act 3, you like to surprise people with something they didn't see coming. It's always helpful if you can make characters that seem sympathetic in a horror movie turn evil. And you go, wow, I didn't know that they were in on it. But why the hell is Pritchard in on whatever's going on here? If these are all hostages to an evil child, I would think that everyone would want to pile into that delivery truck and get the hell out of there. But no, this is actually a desirable situation. This is the male bride delivery system. This is the guy that gets the women for him. And I'm taken right back to the remake of Texas Chainsaw and House of a Thousand Corpses, where the kindly guy who's supposed to drive you away from it drives you right back into it. I mean, there's another psychic flash, and I don't know what psychic flashes versus just bad ideas, but when they're going to get into Pritchett's truck, Tim has a vision of himself dying of heat exhaustion in the back of that truck. Is that a worst case scenario that Tim is thinking of? Or is it a vision of the future? For whatever reason, they do the smart thing and just get the hell out in the cop's abandoned SUV. Yeah, and this is where I know something's up with Pritcher because he just turns to Cole and he's like, well, that solves our cop problem. Right. How did they even contact him to know that this was going on? If Even if he were in on it, I guess it's a psychic link because he would have no knowledge that a cop had stopped by at two in the morning. Yeah, I don't even know if he necessarily understood what was going on. I He just shows up. He brings the groceries. He's there to deliver yes. the zucchini and the, the loaves of bread. They don't grow their own corn. They have it <laughs> no, delivered. No, I thought that was funny. <laughs> it was the only corn in the movie. Yes. <laughs> it's in a box and we don't see it. Yeah, it's maddening. And he brings a toy. So I finally think that Cole is the evil one because against Cole's wishes, Helen has ordered a toy truck for little Hubie in the barn. But is Helen the evil one because of what happens with that truck? Or was she psychically, telekinetically manipulated to buy the truck? I don't know. I think that the found footage in this movie doesn't come from Cole's camera. I think that they had some footage lying around from a car wreck that they had filmed for another movie. And they just said, hey, let's work this in here. I think the reason why the kid gets the car carrier is because they knew they had this awesome footage of a car carrier that slips and loses some of its vehicles and smashes onto the cars behind it. 
yeah, this whole car accident seems actually impressive. Like, I'm like, dang, this. well, I know where all the money went, but you're right, Stuart. Maybe this was some leftover stock footage, I don't know, from Final Destination or something. Yes. I definitely was thinking about Final Destination, but not favorably because Final Destination had one of the coolest car crashes in the history of cinema, and this was really lame. Hey, for this movie, this was pretty good stuff. Yeah, it's pretty good. For this movie, yes. It looks better than the cop going to space. But Tim deserves to die because if you see a car carrier and the cars are falling off of it, pull to the side of the road, come to a stop. Don't decide you're fucking Mel Gibson and gonna drive around the shit. Yeah, get off the freeway, go have a Big Mac at McDonald's, wait a couple of hours. Here's the thing, though. I don't know if Hubie is causing confusion because Allie's like, okay, just just speed up and go around it. No, 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 just hang back. No, speed up. Like, they're all confused. They can't make a decision. I don't know, again, if that's Hubie doing that or if that's just them being stupid. I think that's her character. I think she was bossy. She always had to say the way that things were going to go and the fact that she didn't know how to navigate this. Yes, I agree. If you see a car slip off, immediately hit the brakes. I mean, because war will not hurt you. It'll be much further down the road in just a few seconds. You're better off taking your chances with the one that's coming at you than you would be trying to drive past it or whatever they're doing here. But this is all faded so that they can kill off Tim and make Allie a... A sister wife? What what are they making her? Yeah, this is where we get back to what does Cole want and how much of this has been orchestrated for his own desires. I thought that he was a good guy. I thought that what was happening was that he was fighting the evil, but now it seems to me like the child is, yeah, delivering him his next wife of the moment. Well, he needs a new wife because the child's killed... Oksana, Helen. Yeah, and I guess that that's the pattern. Why did he kill Helen? She gave him a toy. What a spoiled brat Yubi is. I mean, it just seems very random that he's always had the power to open the padlock. He's been able to influence things outside of the house without direct visual line of sight. So why did he pick this moment to kill Helen? What did Helen do? Is it because she tried to get out? I don't think it was anything she did. I think her time was up. I've had enough of you. I like the new girl and I'm replacing you. It's simply an upgrade. You're the old car that I'm taking to uh, trade in. But yeah, that now that all puts it back on Cole, I, somehow I have to rectify that Cole, the Vietnam vet that came home to watch everyone slaughtered by children, now is in a perpetual cycle of marrying pregnant women so that he can have, what, uh, more evil children on the farm? There's children all of a sudden, suddenly out of the woodwork, where there was none in the movie before, there are like 20 extras in Amish wear who come out. Where were they hiding? I guess there is a whole cult. They're not in the fields because there are no cornfields, but (laughs) they're, I don't know, they're in the desert. And they come out to show that this was not a remote area at all, but a thriving village of polygamy where Cole is really at center and at blame. Yeah, you're saying that they're children. I thought there was grown women too. I did take it as he was a polygamist and had multiple wives at this point. There were grown women. Were they all pregnant, just waiting to give birth and then they'll be killed when they're born? Is it a polygamy cult? One of them looks a hell of a lot like Helen. I had to rewind. I thought Helen came back to life. I was really (laughs) confused. It's quite a pickle. And do we know why now Allie goes and snuggles with Hubie? I take, again, she's brainwashed at that point. His powers are 
controlling her. That's why I think it would be much cleaner if we found out that Cole was being controlled by Hubie at this point, and that would help this ending make a little bit more sense, is that eventually he takes over your mind. Yeah, if we had that flashback back to outside Gatlin, you're right, that would at least give us some symmetry. We can see that a pattern is in place here. The way they do it here, we just have to guess, and it doesn't seem like we're very good guessers. I have no idea. (laughs) You're right, Stuart. That would have been great symmetry. If we started with a flashback to Gatlin, and we saw Cole's introduction to the children, if we'd ended with a flashback to Gatlin to find out why the fuck Cole was doing what he was doing, I would have loved that. But Jacob Stewart, do you love Children of the Corn Genesis? Jacob. You know, this one started off promising. I I never know if these are going to be a recommend from a promising beginning. You know, there's nothing at the beginning here that said, oh, yeah, this is worth watching. But it was promising. It showed it was a small child that had potential to grow into something great. And then it grew into a confounding mess of uh, no logic, no sense. I, I'm not sure what happened. I, I, you know, Stuart, I always know you talk about paranormal activity with disdain. I didn't mind that stuff in here, and probably because it wasn't found footage, it wasn't shaky cams. I liked the atmosphere and the mood at the, you know the first half of the film. It was kind of creepy, I guess, but this film doesn't know where to go. It doesn't know what to do by the end of it. It's going to be a middle of the pack for me probably when I finally get around to figuring out. <laughs> You know, least awful to most awful for these films, but it's not a recommend. Stuart. It started out being a kernel, but by the end, pure husk. There's no way that whatever is good about it. And there is some decent stuff here in the setup. There's promise. It's not that anything here was ever good, but there was the promise that it could turn into something good. I liked where they were headed. They were on a road that seemed to lead towards a result that was new and promising. But even if they hadn't tried to clumsily stick the corn mythology in here, I suspect that the child's bride horror movie concept just wasn't going to work. It's incomprehensible by the end, but this is not a good corn film. It's not a good paranormal activity film. It's not a good exploitation film about polygamy cults. The kindest thing I can say about it is it's not the worst children of the corn film. As bad as this is, it's still much better than several we've seen here in the corn franchise and definitely within the Night Shift film. So it's bad, but it could be worse. Yes, we have seen worse. I went in with such low expectations, you know, Hellraiser revelations. Ninth part of a franchise. Well, yeah, this is also the ninth part of a franchise. They have kept pace or Hellraiser caught up. So yes, it's better than my expectations. But something happened to me with this movie that has never happened to me before. And I don't expect anyone to believe this story. I barely believe this story. I ordered this movie off of Amazon for four bucks because I didn't know if there'd be a commentary or anything else. I couldn't just Netflix it as the multimedia fan here. If there was a commentary, a making of, even a trailer, I'd have to watch it. Two days before we're recording this, I'm finally about to put that thing in my player. I opened the shrink wrap. I didn't buy it used. Brand new shrink wrapped Blu-ray from Amazon. I opened it up. There's no disc. I, I'm sitting there. I'm like, I'm just staring at this empty case for like 30 seconds. Like, huh? is it on the other side? I'm like moving the ads away, looking for a disc. Because I can't believe I had a shrink wrap disc with no disc in it. And I'm like, Amazon is not going to believe me. I'm going to say I need to return this because there's no movie in my movie. I'm lucky it was on Netflix and I found out there were no bonus features. But that was the fates telling me don't watch this film. 
<laughs> You've seen enough shitty corn movies. Do you need to watch another shitty corn film? I truthfully believe he who walks behind the stacks at Amazon took the disc out trying to spare me 80 mitts. No, it's not the worst corn film, but it's still a shitty corn film. Not recommend. But it is the last corn film. I know that there is talk about rebooting it. Of course there is. Why would you stop with a part nine? But <laughs> yes, I think that there is a legitimate attempt to bring it back to theaters to try and scare people to spend a little bit of money. And it would have to be a reboot, right? They got to start over. Yeah, I think that that's or. You could do one of those pseudo sequels like Incredible Hulk or Halloween H2O where it's just the kids have been in that town for a while and whatever's happened, happened. And here's the problem with that theory, Arnie. I don't know what's happened in this corn universe. I really feel like we got that first film and then they told eight writers to write a sequel. And that's how we got these eight. Well, I guess one was a remake. So they told seven writers to do a sequel. And each of these were just the sequel they came up with based on that first film. Like there's no continuity here. There's nothing to bring back to the viewer's mind if they did a pseudo sequel true but you could just recap you, you know the way the incredible hulk recapped how the hulk was built you wouldn't have to retell king's original story that would be your best bet but it didn't work out so well in 2009 why would it work out in 2014 the way things are going now hell i could see this being greenlit as a tv series come on you know the the daily dramas of the of the children that are living trying to make it on their own in gatlin after they killed their parents yeah i can just imagine this being on MTV or FearNet. A&E would be who'd take it. <laughs> but hopefully the stench of rotten corn just keeps everyone away because this series, I'm the King fan and I could bring myself to give only one recommend to the original while acknowledging there are deep, deep flaws with that film. Every other film in the series has been a not recommend. I don't think there has ever been any series to receive 26 not recommends from us. But Corn 1 got the only green arrow of the whole series from me. If I have to rank the shit ones, I'd say the remake was second best. I thought about recommending it in a moment of Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> Corn 5 would be next. It had some fun moments. And Genesis was the last of them, the lowest on the rankings of the ones I thought about recommending. And then... I mean, just trying to order the shit into a pile, I guess three is the best of the shit, 666 is the worst of the shit, with two, Revelation, and four, somewhere in between in descending order. I think you've skipped the best one, the student film, Disciples of the Crow. That remains the best Children of the Corn movie. A 20-minute student film project is better than these nine movies, all of them, including yes. the original. I think, for me... Yeah, excluding that and sticking with the nine we covered here, I'm going to go part four. I actually think if you want to fake Freddy Krueger, that one was okay. It actually had some good imagery. Wow. And then part three, I think it was kind of fun to go to the hood. I don't know that they fully explored the camp of that, but it was at least an attempt. Then the original, I guess, basically mostly for the opening shocker. I think people remember how scary it starts and forget how dull and drab it becomes in the middle. And uh, the reboot quickly after that. Then it's just quickly falling after that. Part five, this one, I guess. Isaac's Return, part two, and then at the very bottom, part seven. Whatever you do, don't ever watch part seven. That is tedious beyond all boundaries, even for a corn film. That's Revelation, right? That yes. didn't have the number in it? Yes. Well, this, in, in my version, it did. Oh, mine never had a seven. It was when they went away from the numbers. On Netflix, I think it does say Children of the Corn 7 Revelation. Oh. 
All corn films are boring, but this one just attests that. I mean, it goes even beyond what you thought they could get away with in calling it a feature. And I do agree with you, Stuart, that 20-minute Disciple of the Crow is the best one. I Most of these films are 80 minutes, and they struggle to make an entertaining 80-minute film. But for me, I'm not a slasher fan. The campier, the better for me. So three is at the top when they go to the hood. Two, I know you guys hated that one, but it it was campy enough to be enjoyable for me. Still not a recommend. And then, you know, the first film and the remake, it's almost a tie. I guess I'd give the edge to the first film because of John Franklin's performance and because of that opening scene. It's it's a little bit more boring than the, the remake, but it's more iconic, too. So I'll, I'll give that the edge over the remake. And then four, that ended up in the middle. I, I apologize, Stuart. <laughs> I remember hating on that film so much deservedly so yes but little did i know what was to come yeah come on by comparison it's genius <laughs> by comparison yeah and then i'll give it this film genesis it's it was an all right first half and then five then six 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 and then yeah revelation that that one hit mangler territory for me that that will always be the bottom you guys act like the Mangler's the worst thing. I mean, we've seen a lot of Night Shit. Mangler 3 is the worst no. thing. Oh, yes, I would argue that. Night Shift itself has been really hard on me. I mean, 22 films, and the only one that I really liked was Cat's Eye. That's the truth of the matter is, the only one that I really could just endorse is one. One out of 22. And the rest of it, awful. And the worst of the worst is all three Mangler films. Yes, those are the absolute bottom of the barrel. Whatever you do, don't ever watch a Mangler movie. Yeah, that's the thing. When I'm looking over all these Night Shift series, if I'm trying to rank them by series, Corn, yeah, this, these are nine bad films, but Mangler, those were only three. It's a third. I think I'd rather sit through these nine than those three again. Corn uh, actually kind of came in the middle of the bottom half for me. What did I even recommend here? I think the first Sometimes They Come Back and Maximum Overdrive, but I think as a series, I think if I had to watch like a series again, I'd go back to Lawnmower Man. Those, those are at least campy. That first one is bizarre. I didn't recommend and that second one is just a camp fest. I mean, I can sit through those again and at least laugh. Although that second movie is easily one of the worst. That one is down there with the Mangler ones. If if it's not called Mangler, the worst night shift movie is Job's War. That thing is, whoa. Oh, there's at least some bad laughs to be had with Job's War and some of the Mangler stuff and the original Lawnmower Man. I mean, as a low-rent horror fan, I can go with some of these Night Shift things. I realize that other than Cat's Eye, there's not been a lot of good filmmaking here. But there are some that are enjoyable, guilty pleasures, including especially that first Mangler. I would say... To me. Wait, yeah, especially. Like, that yeah. was a good one to seek out? Yes, I recommended it. Let's keep okay. it in mind. Oh, wow. I mean, just for the Robert Englund performances and Buffalo Bill in there. It was awful. The icebox attacked him in the middle. It's just terrible. Oh, it's no. Funny. No. Yes, and the antacid nightshade. Listen, I'm not saying that it's up there with The Shining or the original Carrie or- It's not up there with Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> the TV Carrie. It's awful. <laughs> it is more entertaining than Maximum Overdrive. We have had that discussion. It is not. No. Well, I actually had a chance to talk to Reggie Band. Minister, Lance Henriksen, and Robert England about manglers. <laughs> I have a new game. It costs a little bit of money, but if you 
put a really obscure, terrible film in front of an actor and ask them to sign it, you get stories. <laughs> <laughs> you went to a horror con, huh? They're shocked anyone liked it or much less owns it. Yeah. I'm surprised they remember it. This is the kind of thing you do in the deepest, darkest, <laughs> depraved addiction cycle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I put it in front of Robert Englund. I started with Mangler 1. I went in order. Robert Englund, three-hour wait for the autograph. But since we're doing this Stephen King retrospective, I've started getting movies signed by the actors from the Stephen King thing. So give him the Mangler. And he looks at that. Mangler? I haven't seen that yet, this convention. You know, this is one of the better Stephen King adaptations. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? A hell of a lot better than that Maximum Overdrive. (laughs) He's not wrong about that. Yeah, he is. Actually, he is. I'm guessing it's because he starred in one of those, which is why he (laughs) prefers one over the other. He kept telling me about how they were working with so little because it was based off a short story, and he read the short story to research his character, and all it said was that he had a limp or was crippled. So he came up with everything, the leg braces, all of it on his own. He said he was basing it off of actor Joseph Cotton. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love Joseph Cotton. Uh, You, sir, know Joseph Cotton. (laughs) Was there a movie where Joseph Cotton had leg braces? Because Robert England was talking very fast and he was referencing, he is up on his Hollywood history, his classic cinema. That man knows it. And you wouldn't think that of Freddy, but he's into old cinema. And he's like, the only reason I could even remember Joseph Cotton is because he said, yeah, he was the one who played the lead in Citizen Kane. Well, something about leg braces and another role. And that's all his inspiration. He loved the Mangler. So then I go to Lance Henriksen. Mangler 2. Wildly different reaction that he's signing tons of alien stuff. Every so often somebody brings a Millennium DVD set and I come up and he can tell I don't have alien. He goes. So what obscure piece of shit movie do you have for me to sign? (laughs) (laughs) He guessed that one, right? Yeah. And I put the Mangler 2 in front of him. And he goes, oh, fuck. Mangler (laughs) 2? This is the worst piece of shit I ever made. (laughs) And I look at him, I go, will you sign it that way, please? (laughs) And so he signs to Arnie. This is the worst film I ever made. Lance Henriksen. But he's the best part about it. He says he calls it an alimony film. Every so often, his ex-wife needs a check, and so he had to do Mangler 2 to pay her. He said he ad-libbed most of his dialogues. The script was shit. And one take, he's hanging from wires, and he's ad-libbing, and he says the Spice Girls. Then he finishes the take. He goes, oh, fuck, I just said the Spice Girls. And then he watches the final cut, and they kept in, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. (laughs) Reggie Bannister barely remembered Mangler 3, so I got all possible reactions. (laughs) He's He's like, yeah, most of my films are this type of independent production, and then regaled me with phantasm stories for about 10 minutes. So if you want to talk to the stars about the Mangler, one of the best, worst film ever, very forgettable. I think that kind of goes along our lines. Two out of three. Yeah, pretty accurate. But come on, again, none of these are good. It's just a question of where could I find some enjoyment and where can't I? I was able to find some enjoyment in the campiness of Mangler. But yeah, Night Shift, wow. This just has to be King sold the rights so early into his career that he was non-discerning. And 
much like Marvel during those days when we ended up with Man-Thing and the Dark Water and all these people who ended up with legacy rights, this has been a slog. But truthfully, truthfully, I've been sitting here considering, would I prefer to watch all nine corn films again or Graveyard Shift one more time? And that's a hard thing. <laughs> to me, Graveyard Shift is still the bane of Night Shift. It's not that bad. No! It truly is. No, no, it no, no. It truly is. It is an ugly, despicable, incomprehensible, <laughs> dark, boring mess. I feel like you've just described most of the films reviewed during this series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have it in blue and in blue. I mean, yeah, the, this is the color of the season. This is what it is. I, here's my quick reference point. Cat's Eye, only good night shift. Then you can watch those student films. They're okay. I mean, none of them were great, but, you know, I gave it a green arrow. The best franchise, I think, is the Sometimes They Come Back trilogy. You got one cheesy TV movie. You got the silly Hillary Swank fucks Alexis Arquette camp fest in the middle. That drab thing ripoff wasn't so great, but that's as good as a franchise as they got. After that, I guess I'd go Lawnmower Man, although, again, that second one. It, it gives me hives. Jacob recommended it. Yeah, I, I, not because it's good. It, it was a brown arrow for me. Yeah, it's one <laughs> of the worst movies ever made, and that may be a, a celebration. Yeah, I could laugh at those things. I don't mind laughing during a film and making fun of it, and that's what I could do with those. I want to point out, it's horrible, though, and that's that's my point. It is one of the worst movies of all time, which may be enjoyable to you, but it is horrible. It is easily the second worst film in this Night Shift franchise, then Children of the Corn, then Graveyard Shift, and then I would put Trucks beneath that, Arnie, and definitely Mangler beneath that. You know, I'm looking through all of the reviews we've given and the lack of recommends these Night Shift films have gotten. And if I had to pick a favorite franchise from this whole thing, it's close between Children of the Corn, because that original is a cult classic that's kind of enjoyable, or Lawnmower Man, which is so outrageously funny and just it has become its own thing with its CGI graphics and all of that. So those two are in contention. One because it's actual horror, and one because it's just so maniacally bad it's good. As far as movies, I agree. The best Children of the Corn is The Dollar Baby, and the best movie, the best Stephen King movie we've reviewed this year is Cat's Eye. See Cat's Eye. Of all the recommends we've given, that's the only one that is truly a wholehearted, this is a film really worth seeing. And it was a comedy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But you know what? I don't think it's ever going to be this bad again. I think that Night Shift is the dark chapter in Stephen King. We don't have anything this long again, do we? Right, exactly. I mean, there will be bad ones. Believe me, I know what's coming. I, I can remember some that are horrible. But I don't think it will ever feel this agonizing again. I think that when we talk about other areas of his career, we'll see bright spots mixed in with the crap. Well, Stuart, at least we don't have to eat any more corn. Yeah, I, I'm swearing off that. My new diet is good movies. I want nothing but good movies until we get to Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, and I'm hoping that's a great movie, too. But I love Christopher Nolan. Next week, we're going to kick off covering all the films we haven't already. Now, longtime listeners know we've covered Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, and Inception. Those are all shows that have been available for years. Well, now we're going to be doing everything else that is on his resume. And I'm a fan. I'm looking forward to all of them. And I'll let listeners decide what I am. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm getting excited about Interstellar. I think there's going to be more to it than the trailers are letting on. I think the trailers are making it seem like a really straightforward, almost kind of 
2001 meets Deep Impact type movie. But this is Nolan. I have a feeling there's going to be something else going on in that movie. And I'm getting very curious. We'll know in a month, but four weeks building up to that. We've got Following, Memento, Insomnia, and The Prestige. Two of those I'm really looking forward to. <laughs> and all of them will be better than any Children of the Corn film. On a certain scale. I mean, I did recommend one Children of the Corn film, but as we always say, we grade each franchise by what it is. And yeah, I can't imagine any will be as poorly made as any of the Children of the Corn films, even the best Children of the Corn film. Yeah, you may not like them, they may not be to your taste, but they will be better made movies than anything we've had for nine weeks now. Yeah, but you said you're having a diet of only good movies. Let's not forget, this Friday, the Leprechaun goes to space. Are you really <laughs> thinking that's the end for you, Stuart? <laughs> yeah, I guess we're just pushing that all onto the donation series. Gold-level donors are crazy enough to want us to cover seven Leprechaun movies. So we have been. We're halfway through. It hasn't been as horrible as I would have thought. It, it's been better than Children of the Corn, if that's the low bar. But uh, yeah, he's going to space. That's either going to be a brilliant move or the worst of the series. I haven't decided yet. Yeah, absolutely. Even the worst Leprechauns we've seen so far are better than the dregs of the corn films we've seen. Yeah, and bulk of those corn films are far worse than most movies we watch. <laughs> At least this year with Night Shift. And you can get that by supporting our show. The donation drives fund every show we do. So if you enjoyed the Christopher Nolan series or Mutant Ninja Turtles, or if you enjoyed hearing us tortured by corn, all of that is made possible thanks to donors. So head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click the banner at the top, find out how for a silver level donation, you can hear the six reviews of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings film. For a gold level donation, you can hear all of the Leprechaun films if you haven't heard enough of us doing some low-rent horror. And I promise there's not just green hats, there's green arrows in that series too. And for a platinum donation, you even get us reviewing the three animated Lord of the Rings films. All the details can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. And we'll be back next week, Malachi. We'll be back next week. I'm leaving now. I'm gonna go find some people and tell them about what's happening here in Gatlin. I don't think they'll believe me at first. I don't think I believe it myself. But they will. Eventually. You guys all belong in an asylum somewhere. Looney Ben. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Congratulations, Tiger. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You know what's all you need now that The Sopranos is dead and buried? <laughs> Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another film based on Stephen King's books and short stories. This is the word of he who walks by in the rose. We do this word for Shiny Shadow. At our sister podcast, booksandnachos.com, you can hear Arnie's reviews of the original Stephen King books and short stories on which these films are based. You should look it up. You still remember how to read, don't you? In the nowplayingpodcast.com archives, you can find many more reviews of Stephen King films, including Maximum Overdrive, The Mangler, Sometimes They Come Back, The Lawnmower Man, Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, and more. Find dozens of Stephen King movie reviews at nowplayingpodcast.com. Well, these kids watch too many horror flicks. 
Also at our website, you can find reviews of film series such as The Avengers, Star Trek, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Silent Night's Deadly Night, Scream, Transformers, Robocop, and hundreds more. Movies are filled with violence, blood, Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. Can't you for one moment conceive of something in this universe that's larger than you? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. $200. Uh-uh, Joby. How much? Now Playing's Children of the Corn retrospective series is edited by Heath, Casper, and Arnie. I don't want to be the one in charge when the heads start doing 360s in a hurling pea soup. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. He filled me with the words. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Now Playing podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. That won't matter to Isaac and Malachi. They'll take it as a sign. You speak for the others or only for yourself. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I am the word and the giver of his laws. Disobedience to me is disobedience to him. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. So what do we do about the children? Tell their story. Let the healing begin. It's not too late for that, is it? No. Yes, none of the people I'm going to list in the starring cast are underage. We have yeah, Corey Walker. Oksana. We have Corey Walker, Ke- Kellen Coleman, Billy Drago, and Barbara... Nedeljakova? Nedeljakova. Thank you. I'm they got guessing. an actual Ukrainian f- to play the Ukrainian, I see. <laughs> no tow truck will come. Somehow I spelled it in my notes T-O-E. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. <laughs> There's only one actor I recognize here, and it was Billy Drago, who I didn't even know what I'd seen him before. But I'm like, oh, yeah, he's the one that you want to get when you want to hire Willem Dafoe, but you can't afford. You don't remember discussing him in Lords of Salem? No. What was he in Lords of Salem? I don't remember discussing him in Lords of Salem either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. He just looked up the cat, what he's been in. He's like, he was in that movie. I know. I saw it twice and read the book, and I have no knowledge of that. It's vaporized. <laughs> Was he one of the naked witches? I I have no idea. That's all I remember. Sagging witch tits. <laughs> and she winds up in the only cornfield in the only corn uh, in the only cornfield we're ever going to see. I think that this is a merging of of again. This is what. Hold on. God damn. There's cops. <laughs> Are they going to fly into space? Do you have child brides there? <laughs> Come on, it's like 7 in the morning. What could be going down at the beach now? You are in Venice. I know, you're right. It's probably a whole, yeah, child bride (laughs) cult. Surfing. Surfing child brides. Can we get that as a sequel? Yeah, I'm sure we can.
How, how about a sequel to Surf Ninjas? Surf Ninjas, Child Brides. <laughs> Strangely, somebody actually, I came home while we were recording this franchise. I came home one day. Someone had left corn on my doorstep. <laughs> it's harvest season in Illinois. I just, There was no note, no name. I really thought the children were out to get me because of all the not recommends I've given. <laughs> I thought I was marked. <laughs> the donation drives fund every show we do so if you enjoyed the peter nolan series if you enjoyed nolan? <laughs> <laughs> who's peter nolan i don't know peter jackson mixed with peter yeah there nolan. it is yeah <laughs> six reviews of peter jackson's films for a gold level donation you can not peter jackson oh, yes. oh yeah i'm sorry okay yeah okay <laughs> We'll be back next week, Malachi. We'll be back next week. Next week. Next week. My, care, my chair keeps, <laughs> keeps creaking.